Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to give you a new way to get in touch with us. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. Send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts on our shows, any ideas you might have for guests, or anything else you want to share with us. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let us know what you're thinking. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Josiah Osgood, a professor of classics at Georgetown University. His teaching and research cover many areas of Roman history and Latin literature, with a special focus on the fall of the Roman Republic. He has written a multitude of scholarly works and books, including his most recent, Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic, which is slated to hit bookstores later this year and is available for pre-order now. Today, he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Josiah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so I am a definite nerd and an amateur history nerd. And I feel like the reason why I think that the classics are so valuable or maybe invaluable to what we see today is because there are always so many parallels. And as I was reading your book, like the echoes were bouncing off the historical canyon walls. So your story begins late in the Roman Republic. It's got somebody that everyone's heard of, Julius Caesar, is one of the protagonists, and Cato. But they could not be more different in sort of aspect, personality, the way they saw the world, the things they wanted. And as you get through it, you see that the more that they succumb to their own personalities, the more that the Republic around them started to crumble. But before we get to that, I was fascinated by that, like Roman politics, if we think our politics is pretty crazy, it had nothing on the Romans. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is part of the fun of the period in a way, though, as some of those parallels creep in, maybe it becomes a little less fun. But it was a wild political scene. The heart of it was the Roman Forum, which was this big square in the center of Rome. And that's sort of where everything happened. Politicians would come there and they'd sort of level accusations at each other. They'd get very personal. Personal attacks were often considered the best in Roman politics. So it was very cutthroat, really almost sort of a form of warfare. And that even whether or not it was the Senate debating a new law, the tribunes debating a new piece of legislation, or somebody being tried for a crime, the evidence was sort of secondary to the argument that whoever made the better argument, whoever was the better orator, and that's probably a word that comes from Roman times, was the one who was likely to be victorious. And that in some of these, you see in one scene, Caesar gets up and gives this rousing speech for his side, and then Cato gets up and eviscerates it, and suddenly everybody behind Caesar like runs across the way to say, we're standing with Cato to this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of one of the interesting things about Julius Caesar, right, is we think of him today as the great general, the conqueror. But that was, in a way, the second act of his career. I mean, he did military service when he was young. All Romans did. But he got his start as an orator and really became one of Rome's greatest speakers. And, you know, he sort of had this rivalry with the great orator Cicero. And the sort of the joke was, well, if Caesar hadn't gone on to war, you know, maybe he actually could have finally taken the crown from Cicero as best orator. So here we are. The Roman Republic is in a very rocky time. It has been beset by violence in the city. Thousands of Romans have been killed by Sulla. Now, Sulla, and I don't want to get too confusing because there's so many characters. Sulla had come in and basically taken over as sort of a dictator and had deployed his partisans, for lack of a better way to put it, to take out his enemies. And they had killed thousands of Romans and put a bunch of heads, literally heads on spikes. It scared the hell out of everybody. And that this was a formative moment for both Julius Caesar and Cato because they both in their younger years realized that this was the wrong way to rule the Roman Republic. They were not a dictatorship. They were a republic. But this is where they diverge, which was Caesar becomes a populist. He becomes a populist leader. Later in his career, he will fight and advocate on behalf of the Roman legions, land distribution, grain distribution. Cato wants the supremacy of the Roman Senate, that he wants the status quo. But neither one of them are going to get what they want. Yeah, I think that's right. So this civil war was very bloody. And both of them were young. Caesar was a very young man. Cato was even a bit younger, a teenager. But they both lived through it. They were affected by it. And, and it sort of left them with different scars, right? And for Caesar, it was sort of the kind of fear of what could happen if a very powerful autocrat took over and trampled the rights of the people. And for Cato, it was this fear of a general marching on Rome under arms. That was his great fear. So they both had that the rest of their life. But I would say that in fairness to Cato, he did want the status quo. In some ways, he looked to the past. He drew a lot of inspiration from early Roman history. But he was a bit of a reformer, too, in his own way. And he really wanted rule by the Senate, but he wanted it to be virtuous rule. He very much believed in the importance of character, good character in politics. And you know, this is why he became a personal hero, for example, of George Washington hundreds of years later, he sort of stood for virtue and kind of practiced what he preached there. He led a very austere life himself. So he's a complicated character from that point of view. Right. And even Cato has to perform military service and he goes east and other Roman military leaders come back with slaves. They come back with treasure. He comes back with a philosopher. Yeah. They're all ripping statues out of temples and you know, if it can't be bolted to the ground, it's on the boat back to Rome. And Cato is very proud because he lures this philosopher who is famously difficult and, you know, wouldn't even talk to kings. And then young Cato is there and sort of persuades him to come back to Rome and counsel him and serve as his advisor. But I think to the layperson, and I include myself in that list, first of all, we have Caesar dressing, we have Caesar salads, we have Caesarian sections, czars, kaisers, everything, right? Like Caesar has gone down in history in this sort of manifold way. Shakespeare wrote a play about him, Et tu Brute, which we'll get to. He's good looking. He's lavish. He's always in debt. He's sleeping with everybody's wives. And I'll be honest with you, not to overstate it, but he's a little bit Trumpy that way, Josiah. 
I mean, Trump is certainly no scholar, no or well, he's an orator, but of a type. He's certainly no military leader like anybody we consider, certainly not as three dimensional as rounded as Caesar. But as I was reading this, and maybe it's because I'm so involved in what we see today, I kept coming back to that, which was, yes, there are always extreme differences, but you could see that they played on many of the same things to their people. Yeah, obviously, we're not going to learn from history if we reduce it just to simple parallels. And I purposely don't talk about modern politics explicitly in the book because I think the story kind of transcends that. But sure, I do think people reading the book, and, and as I wrote the book, I do see parallels with current events all the time. I think the Trump era and the Trump style of politics is very much, to go back to your earlier point, is kind of Roman and that it's so personal. The way Trump weaponized nicknames, for instance, or something like that, is the kind of techniques that Roman politicians used. And it grabbed attention then, and we see it can grab attention nowadays. So there are certainly some parallels. And so then to go to Cato, right, who, again, is to folks who study history, study the classics as you teach them, has a fascinating history of his own. As you noted, he's a practicing Stoic. He goes about not in lavish togas and tunics like Caesar does, but in dirty tunics of an old style. He wants to be seen as a normal Roman, even though he knows he's not and everybody else knows he's not. He wants to associate that way. When he takes over the treasury, for lack of a better way to put it, he goes through all of the accounts and throws out all the bad debt. He gets rid of all the bribes. He gets rid of all this stuff, which, of course, makes many of the senators and many of the people who'd been on the take upset with him. So you're right. He was a reformer, but he almost had this feeling, aside from his oratorical abilities, to be a guy who's like, I know you want dessert, but you got to eat 17 pounds of broccoli before you get it. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, he is sort of the master of personal branding, too. He just did it very differently. So things like taking on the treasury, you know, all the other politicians would sort of get in bed with the civil service there. And, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And Cato won a lot of fame for sort of this crusade against the treasury, which he undertook as a very young politician. I think there are parallels, you know, I'm not going to give you a, a name from current politics, but, you know, one example of somebody I was thinking about recently is the great abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner in the 1850s, right, who was a real reformer. Obviously, he wanted to abolish slavery, and he didn't intend to get caned on the Senate floor. But the sort of fame he won for that is a bit kind of like Cato, right, sort of becoming a symbol personally for a bigger cause. I think Cato had that talent, too, that political ability. Well, and you even note in the book that Cato, while probably not a fan of being beaten up, understood that there was a moral advantage to having withstood a physical attack. Now, Sumner almost damn near died <laughs> from his wounds, but Cato understood that having a mob chase you down for your beliefs and you held those beliefs above all others and you lived by them, that there was a very moral component to that. Yeah. And, you know, another parallel is, of course, we see it with peaceful resistance during the civil rights era, Gandhi, and then Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis. That's an example of where sort of the bravery in the line of battle, right, or in the line of attack, you know, really drew attention to a, a worthwhile cause. So that's another parallel that comes to mind. 
I mean, with Cato, you sort of, yeah, as you said, you don't love it, but you almost get the sense occasionally in his career that he did sort of bring these things on because he knew it would bring him publicity. And that's where it started to become a bit dangerous politically sometimes because it would lead to these deadlocks. So before we go on about these two icons, let's talk about the Roman people at this time. So obviously you had the senators, you had the patricians, right? The people of wealth, family, power, and you had the plebeians. I don't want to say average Romans, but Roman citizens, which then was a big deal. To be a Roman citizen, you got to vote. Roman men, I assume, got to vote. You lived in the city, which was interesting that I think it was between 85 and 70 BC that they hadn't done a census. And by the time they did a census, like 15 years later, it was like there were a million people in Rome, which back then must have been an incredible sight to behold, given that most of the world was empty. Yeah. So this is one of the issues in the late Roman Republic. And part of what makes it so fascinating is Rome had been a smaller city state like Athens or so many others. And then it just grew and grew and grew and spread the citizenship. And that was kind of one of the sort of issues at stake in this period, right, was what sorts of rights would Italians get? How easily could they come into the city of Rome if they didn't live there to vote? This led to problems in politics as well as opportunities. And Caesar sort of embraced the new citizens in general in his career and even wanted to extend citizenship to those who didn't have it. So that was a big difference. But the city of Rome itself must have been vast and teeming, and, and there was a lot of discontent there. And that was one of the issues in politics, right, is who would take care of the people who could offer them opportunities in lives where there was a lot of deprivation and risk. Well, and politicians would often put on games, feasts, deliver grain, bribes were everywhere. And the Roman citizenry came to expect those things. And you use the word deprivation in the book because to be a Roman citizen in the city of Rome, a lot of tenements, it was a rough time, right? I mean, let's be clear. This is not New York City in 2022, right? This is, this is before the year zero, right, as far as our calendar is concerned. And so people came to say, well, wait a second, like, they're going to run for office? Like, yeah, let's have a party. Let's watch a lion eat a guy, right? Let's get fed. Like, I, yeah, I'll, I'll take some extra grain. Let's make some more bread. And then Cato, I believe, starts to sort of say we shouldn't do those things because they're infecting politics. And everybody's like, well, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, maybe more like New York City 1892, right? Vast numbers pouring in, minimal services, you know, and the politicians that can build a machine are going to succeed in rustling up voters and also using voters for physical coercion sometimes in these assemblies. And that's another one of the problems and part of why Cato gets concerned, right? He's very austere and abstemious personally. And yeah, he does kind of want everyone to be that way. You know, as a good stoic, he thinks feeding people the lines or something like that is horrible. So he's opposed to it personally, but he also thinks that it is corrupting the whole political process because it means that people aren't going to choose the politicians who really have the people's best interest at heart. That's his argument. And that was one of the things I found interesting was that, I mean, as a Stoic, would you call him like a proto-humanist almost? Yeah, very much so. The ancient Stoics, Cato included, we don't really have any philosophical writings. He studied it. He didn't write it. But we have others, and they do pave the way for later human rights theory. The one glaring exception, which has to be mentioned, is Rome was a slave society. And 
no ancient Stoic really ever went there in terms of advocating full abolition of slavery. And I think that's important to mention too, very quickly, just because that's part of why the people do have this sense of their rights that's so strong, is if you were a citizen, even if you were poorly off, that still made you better than, in their eyes, a slave, right? Which would be absolutely the worst form of existence you or I or they could imagine possible. So, you know, we identify with the Roman people, but also have to recognize that the society was built on slavery too. Right. Now, did, let me ask you this. Did every Roman citizen, male Roman citizen, have to serve in the military? So that had been the way traditionally, and there was sort of the threat of that in this period as well, or the possibility of that. Lists would be kept of those who held property or citizenship status, and their military obligation would be set. When there was a war, you would produce the soldiers you needed. So it was a militia system, though that was sort of changing a little bit. And this is why Caesar becomes an important character, right? Is in a way, he's sort of over the long years that he was fighting his wars, he kind of built up an army that was loyal to him rather than the Republic. Right. And let's talk about that too, because this was a guy who was as blunt stained as anybody for his time. I mean, at some point he killed, what, nearly half a million Gauls. You know, he did it all for his dignitas, right? Dignity. That was ultimately his thing. If somebody had to be put to the sword to protect his dignity or his position, like, fine, like that was going to be part of it. But where does he start to morph from this idea that he's this populist? Now he's a military hero. You know, he's been consul. He's out there roaming around. Cato knows it. Pompey, who is, I think, the third member of this story, knows it. He's out there and they know he's out there. So talk a little bit about how Caesar starts to transform from this person who in his own way, wanted to protect the Republic, but became the very thing that he was worried about becoming going back to his youth. What happened was Cato, their feud escalated in Rome, and Caesar felt endangered politically. He was afraid he might be put on trial for some of the things he'd done. So for protection, he decided he needed to have a big lawn war that would give him immunity from prosecution in the Roman system, and then he could raise this army he could make a lot of money through plundering. He could win glory, as we've just said, right? This was glorious, even if by our standards it's genocide. He could win glory in Rome, and it would protect his future politically. So Cato, by fighting Caesar so much, in a way kind of drove Caesar into more desperate actions that actually ultimately made Caesar more powerful. So this war in Gaul, it went on in what is modern France and Belgium. Caesar crossed the English Channel to Britain. You know, this is like the moon landing of its day. Very exciting back in Rome. So all of this built Caesar up. And, you know, Cato is left in the position back in Rome of sort of trying to denounce it. At one point, he has this sort of wild proposal that Caesar should be handed over to the enemy because he violated a truce, right? And this in Roman thinking would bring the wrath of the gods on you if you laid a hand on a sacred ambassador. So Cato has these stunts and protests. And of course, that really didn't fly politically because it was just so much power and, and money and prestige that was flowing to Caesar through this war. So that's why it is, even in a, a book about politics like mine, not a book about military history, that's why this war was so important, is it was politically crucial. Well, and Josiah, as the listeners have probably heard me say too often, 
and Cato is the most, when I say he's not recent time-wise, but the most recent example of my very, very rough, what I'll call theory, which is in human history, the more that you try to prevent the thing you want the least, the more you will find your way to it. And that's feels exactly like what Cato ended up with. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way of summing it up. And I sort of trace this throughout the escalating feud with Caesar, right? As this happens even earlier, he has these tactical victories over Caesar at various points. But by not compromising at all or sort of understanding the bases of Caesar's power and appealing to them, he ended up actually producing more of a monster, I think, more of a dictator than Caesar might ever have become otherwise. That's kind of what's so tragic and haunting about this story and, and makes it cautionary. Do you think as we move towards the Rubicon, literally the Rubicon, do you think that there would have been a way that Cato and or Caesar or the end of the Republic could have been forestalled? Or was it that these were two men who were catalysts in an event that was coming one way or the other and their actions separately and together? just sped it up. Yeah. So this is always one of the great questions with any big war conflict in history, right? Is sort of what are the underlying causes? And then do politicians through errors, through blunders, through sometimes noble actions, do they end up hastening things along? And I'm sort of of that school, right? I think what politicians do does profoundly matter. I refuse to see this all as just kind of structural factors. But of course, structural factors were there. We've talked about them, the needs of the people, Cato's desire to have the Senate keep ruling things. That's a structural tension. I think some kind of compromise should have been possible in this case, though, especially the war that broke out after the crossing of the Rubicon River. I think that Caesar had achieved so much by that point and was so militarily powerful that declaring war on him was very risky, and we know clearly that it backfired. We can talk a little bit about the role of Pompey here, too, who is the sort of the third key figure, as you say, and he's very important in the book, even though I don't think he's quite at the heart of the rivalry. But the issue with Pompey was he was the great general until Caesar came along. And this is going back, did you say in the book that he won his first triumph at the age of 24? That's like being Dwight Eisenhower in your mid-20s. Look, people and Pompey sort of encouraged this. People said he's the Alexander the Great, you know, of, of the Romans. And Alexander, of course, won all his victories in his 20s as well. And, you know, Pompey allegedly had the cloak of Alexander the Great and wore it in a parade through Rome. So Pompey played this up. But the thing about Pompey was he was at heart more of a compromiser and could actually compromise with the Senate when he needed to and sort of wanted institutions to survive. And what happened was Cato alienated Pompey too. So Pompey allied with Caesar through marriage. Caesar married his only daughter, his beloved daughter, to Pompey. And they had a very strong alliance for a couple of years. Then the daughter died in childbirth. And this sort of drove them apart and put Pompey on the side of Cato. And that's kind of how we get to civil wars that Cato and his group feel that, okay, now we have this big general we can take Caesar on. So that's sort of strategically where they're coming from, right? They feel they have enough military might on their side that they will be able to take on Caesar. Of course, they lost. It proved to be a miscalculation. So before we get to anything else, I do want to talk about the role of marriages 
and family in this because it is weaved throughout your book. Women played an incredibly important role, mostly unofficially, right, because of their status. And we should also note, as you noted, it was a slave society. It was also a patriarchy, right? The women had unofficial power and oftentimes wield it with great effect. But again, we're not part of technically the ruling class, but everybody's always getting married and divorced. And it sort of makes like the late European kingdoms look sort of, you know, like child's play in comparison, especially given how small a community these people were. Yeah, marriage is a really interesting part of this society. And politics tended to be dominated by these great families. Some of them had many ancestors who'd served in office. So marriage became a political tool. But what's interesting about it is so the Romans definitely had an idea that, you know, marriage could be for life, it could bring great happiness. Because it did get involved with politics and sharing property and family survival and success, they instituted the practice of unilateral divorce, right, which is quite uncommon historically until modern period. So that the women and their side of the family could initiate divorce and would do so suddenly. So that's why you sort of have these spectacular alliances being made and broken in this period is it was just pretty easy to do so. Property was kept separately too between man and wife as much as possible. Well, and affairs were common. And now Caesar had a long running affair was it with Cato's sister-in-law. Yeah. So this is part of what makes this whole rivalry yet juicier, right? As Caesar had many mistresses, right? Most famously later, he would take up with Cleopatra of Egypt, as everyone knows. But the real love of his life in Rome was Cato's sister, actually his half-sister. And this no doubt infuriated Cato, right? As you know, here he was going on about how this man was the great threat to the Roman Republic. And then Caesar was having an affair with his sister, right? So he couldn't keep Caesar even out of his own family. And, and that is kind of a good reminder. So we say Rome was a patriarchy. Women could not vote. They could not hold office. But that one example sort of helps show us that women did their own thing too, these high-ranking women, and could sort of be independent of the men in their lives. They weren't just going to do what their husbands or their fathers or their brothers told them. So that adds to the interest of the whole period politically is the way women operated, sometimes with their families, sometimes independently. So Caesar and Servilia, Cato's half-sister, there was obviously a physical attraction and a physical affair. But as you note, too, she was intelligent. And Caesar, in his earlier years, relied on her a great deal for her counsel, that this was almost a partnership as much as it was just sort of a, a sordid affair. Yeah, she would have been, like other Roman women, an expert in politics. And, you know, we don't have as much about the lives of the women, so we have to imagine. But what were they doing all day? They couldn't go to the Senate. They couldn't debate. But we know they would have sort of debates at home, these family councils, where women actually could give speeches articulating, you know, one position or another in a political struggle. And I think because they were at home quite a bit and meeting each other and talking about politics, they were a great source of information as well and contacts. So we kind of glimpse it. We don't have the full sources that we'd love to have, but she clearly fit that profile. And that's part of the relationship, no doubt, with Caesar. I mean, to put it bluntly, of course, Caesar could have had affairs with all sorts of women. You know, prostitution was common in Rome in this period, but she had political instincts and knowledge as well, I think. And that must have been part of the basis of the whole affair. All right. So 
one geographical question. Where is or where was the Rubicon River? So I had a professor once in college who said the Rubicon River is a superior ditch, meaning that it's not a great river like the Nile or the Danube. It's kind of a teeny river. It's actually even disputed a little bit sometimes which one it actually was. But its importance was that it was the administrative boundary between Caesar's province in Gaul, where he'd been fighting, and Italy. So when he crossed it, you know, especially in hindsight and this great civil war developed, this became proverbial in, in Roman culture, and it is today, for sort of doing something irrevocable, the point of no return. And so he crosses the Rubicon. And I assume that even in this ancient time, it probably didn't take very long from the moment that he stepped off across the river for it to get back to Rome, that this had happened. Yeah, so it's about three days maximum for news to get from that part of Italy to Rome. So, it, you know, there's a bit of a lag, but of course not that long. So when he crossed the river, I think Cato and others were a little bit shocked in some ways. They've been preparing for it. But, you know, maybe Caesar might have negotiated. There were all these negotiations going on. This is part of why I think, you know, compromise actually might not have been totally impossible. But what happened at this point is a sort of very dramatic scene is Pompey, Pompey's the general. Cato really had no military ability. He thought Rome was fighting too many wars. So Pompey's got to take command. And Cato was backing him. But other senators were a little nervous about this, especially when Pompey told them, we've got to evacuate Rome. We can't stay here. We don't have the forces on hand to defend against Caesar at the moment. And this made a lot of senators unhappy. And you sort of say, well, didn't they see this coming? And of course they should have, but this is one of the points of history, right? As we sort of see that people can kind of lurch into crises, not fully realizing how it's going to play out. So it's a moment of shock, but it's kind of a little bit of a phony war in some ways too for those first few months because Pompey's on the run and they still are sending feelers out to each other. And Caesar wanted to avoid a really big battle right away in Italy if he could because he would look like the invader. All right. So the civil war begins because I, I do want to get to how we can interpret some of the lessons we saw from back then into today. So take us through the ends of these men, of Cato, of Pompey. Caesar's coming down through Italy. Yeah, so Caesar kind of marches down Italy at lightning speed, and this becomes kind of one of the signature qualities is his speed. I mean, it's almost demonic. You know, he can show up in a place where he's not meant to be. He moves so quickly. Sort of like Napoleon would 1,800 years later. Very much, and of course, Napoleon is one of the great parallels, and Napoleon modeled himself on Caesar, though thought he was better, of course, which makes him Caesarian, <laughs> you know, self-regard. So Pompey kind of had old connections around the Mediterranean. He'd run the grain supply of Rome, so he was very strong in shipping. So it becomes quite interesting because the Romans, you know, typically are landlubbers. They fight these big infantry battles, but he organized a naval evacuation of Italy. And he went to the east where he had contacts. And his strategy was to build up an army there, maybe bottle Caesar into Italy, very ugly, even reduce the food supply of Italy to destroy Caesar politically. And then they would negotiate or who knows what would happen. But that seems to have been the general plan. 
And what happened was Caesar marched at lightning speed to Spain. He took out an army there. Then he made a very risky winter crossing across the seas to meet Pompey in the east. They fought various battles. But Pompey seems to have lost his nerve a little bit in some ways. He didn't want to meet Caesar in battle and was relying on this sort of strategy of encirclement and exhaustion. And basically, it just didn't work out. And they had a great showdown, a great battle where thousands of young Roman men were killed. Pompey was on the run, and he went to Egypt. And this became kind of an unexpected episode in the whole war. There was a teenage kid on the throne of Egypt. Pompey thought he could boss him around. And the king's advisors said, we are not turning Egypt into a base for Roman civil war, and they killed him. So out goes Pompey, you know, who had been the Alexander the Great of his day. Caesar showed up in Alexandria, Egypt, literally just a couple days later, I think probably thinking he could negotiate with Pompey now, and they could broker some kind of peace and cut Cato out of things. And Caesar, he upset the people in Alexandria by getting off the boat and marching around as if he owned the city. So they launched a war against him. And he took up for survival, but also for romance with Cleopatra. I mean, this is where, you know, it's just so ridiculously dramatic, right? I know. This is why, guys, if you want, like, go back and read some history, because, like, it beats Game of Thrones or any of it anytime, right? It's just amazing. So he's fighting for his life, trapped in Alexandria in the palace with Cleopatra. She became pregnant with his child, so their romance was blooming, but he was in trouble and, you know, they tried to poison the water into the palace quarters, so he had to dig wells. And, you know, even if you hate Caesar's guts, you kind of have to admire him in that moment. He's just kind of at his swashbuckling best as he survives that. But the problem is it prolongs the war. It allows Cato's side, the Republicans, to rebuild strength in Africa. So Caesar then had to eventually go there and fight another big battle. And that's in some ways more of a turning point even than the fight with Pompey, or at least I think in contemporary minds that seemed to everyone, okay, this really is the end now. So that's sort of militarily what happens. And, you know, we can sort of talk about Cato's famous deed there right after the Romans lost, just adding to the drama what he decided to do. Some went on the seas again, they were going to resist Caesar. Most surrendered, but Cato refused, and he famously took his own life. And this kind of was his ultimate act of obstruction. He was saying, Caesar's a tyrant. There can be no deals with a tyrant, no peace with a man like that. I can't live in Rome under him or, or anywhere in the world. And it sort of ruined Caesar's victory. Not immediately. I mean, Caesar went back to Rome. He had big parades. But this kind of nagged at people's consciences, especially senators, including Brutus, who was the son of Caesar's lover, Servilia. So just adding to the personal drama of it. I know. We need some sort of flow chart here of all the people. Yeah, absolutely. So Caesar, et tu, Brute? Yeah. So that's the final act of the whole drama is, so Caesar established a dictatorship and really, he wanted to go east and fight the Parthians. These are the Persians, basically, in Iraq. He would become the Alexander himself. He was all set to go. He was going to leave in a few days. And a conspiracy of senators took his life. The figurehead was Brutus. And this was 
as they saw it, a stance for liberty. They thought he was a dictator, a king. He was stealing their freedom from them, and he couldn't be allowed to go on. So we sort of have that issue playing throughout the whole story here, right, of, of sort of different ideas of liberty. And for senators to have one man too powerful, a demagogue, a king, this threatened liberty. That was the greatest threat to liberty, and it justified murder. But one thing, Josiah, that I think is important here, and I think this is, as I was reading it, maybe this was my thinking about Cato, was that Cato was trying to recover something, in my mind anyway, that was already unrecoverable. That his intentions broadly seemed to be good, but I think you said something earlier in our conversation that was important, which was they were tactical victories. He was a great political tactician, but he wasn't able to formulate what would be because he thought what we have is what will be, as opposed to understanding that what was was already gone. He was already in the midst of a upheaval, and he either couldn't or wouldn't or didn't want to recognize that something new was coming. And rather than trying to forestall that, he maybe could have spent his innumerable talents on trying to shape what that was. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I think that's a common way to understand this whole period and makes a lot of sense. As we discussed earlier, some things were really changing. There were so many citizens. They lived so far away from Rome, so many of them. You know, certain institutions needed to change more, I think, than Cato was prepared. And then there's the blood of all these young men dying that we sort of have to think about. Does that justify what Cato did? But to his credit, just to give him his credit here for a moment, he really did want to change things and implement some reforms that actually would have made the lives of millions and millions of people better. He wanted better administration of the Roman provinces, fairer justice, less extortion, less ripping people off. And as I discuss at the end of the book, right, a lot of these ideas actually sort of did reach fruition under the later Roman emperors in this so-called Pax Romana. So it's a horrible story, and the toll of human life is just staggering to imagine. But if we look at it as historians in the longer view, we can also see, right, that some of Cato's thinking did bear fruit, and some of his ideas of reform were important. And with other Stoics, as we discussed earlier, you know, he helped develop ideas or promote ideas that would become even centuries later human rights. So before we move to modern America, I mentioned Game of Thrones. There's this quote that was in the TV show, and I went back and I found it in the book. It said, quote, the common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends, Sir Jorah told her. It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, so long as they are left in peace. He gave a shrug. They never are. You might believe that if you just sit quietly by, politics will leave you alone. It never does. It will find you. You can't escape politics. And, you know, maybe I expect too much of politicians in the way I've written this book. But I think the only thing I'd say in response is what power do we have in a democracy? We all have the right to vote, to vote in primaries, to vote in elections. And I think these are things we can consider when we're making our decisions in politics. And this is part of why I study classics, is the idea, for example, that character does matter immensely in our political figures. At least that was an idea in the front and center of, of ancient political thought. But if Donald Trump is a low-rent Caesar, Little Caesar's Pizza, as it were, comparatively. Is there a Cato of our time? What about Liz Cheney right now? I mean, she's taking 
a courageous stance that might be political suicide for her. I think she and Kinzinger and others, all those who've been testifying during the committee hearings, have, you know, many of them shown a, a certain amount of courage. And that, to me, is sort of a Catonian quality where you try to put the country, the republic, ahead of your own party, ahead of your own personal gain. So before I let you go, in your reading of the classics, and as I said, I think that aside from lack of modern civics education, I think lack of historical education or understanding, I think is another huge hole in our collective psyche understanding. Is there anything that from your perspective as a classics professor that we should take a look at today? I know that's an unfair question, probably too big a question to answer in, in a minute or so, but what do you think that we should take a look at? You know, the sort of lessons of my book and this incredibly influential moment of Roman history, right, are to think about the dangers of escalating partisanship, where each action can be logical, but collectively will sort of destroy the system. I think I mentioned it earlier, something we really get out of the classics is that emphasis on the human desire for power. And this gets kind of to the darker view of politics we were talking about, right? A lot of people will just reach for more and more power, and we need checks and balances in place to make it work. And nobody wants to compromise, and yet compromise is essential to politics. So those are some of the things I think about from the classics and from this period and where we are today and what we can all be doing. Yeah, and I just one last thing as I thought through especially with the Roman system of government, which we didn't get into, but is worthy of a discussion all by itself, was that the increasing numbers of exceptions that they were willing to make for a given situation to just try and diffuse that situation. And that in the process, it wasn't just the likes of Caesar and Cato, but also 400 some senators, tribunes and everything else just saying, let's just do this this one time so we can get out of this one thing. And then everything becomes an exception, which, of course, Josiah, that means nothing is an exception and then your institutions are where they are. All right, everybody, look, you can find Josiah's books online. And remember to pre-order Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic. As always, gang, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can follow me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Josiah, thanks for joining me and everyone else. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.